Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the son of the matter, some of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up that great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we read literature like this and it can be confusing. It can leave us wondering where is the hope. But Lord, your words are our hope. Your words are, are our encouragement. It is life. It sustains us. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that this morning as we read, as we look into and delve into this, this vision of crazy beasts. And of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, encourage us in the midst of a world of our own city that is broken, that, Lord, we'll be able to see light and hope even in our time today, this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story that goes like this. There was a pastor who was walking by a city street. And as he was passing by and walking... He noticed a young little girl sitting on the sidewalk 
reading her Bible. But what piqued his curiosity wasn't that she was just reading her Bible, but that she was reading a certain book in the Bible. Of all 66 books in the Bible, she was reading Revelation. And so this pastor stopped, took a few steps back, and engaged this little girl and said, do you know what you're reading? And she said, yes, I do. I'm reading Revelation. And he asked her, well, do you have any idea what all of that means? All the beasts and all these crazy visions and all these weird numbers. Do you know what this means? And he was asking because he was ready to give her some explanation of all the different things that she was reading in the book of Revelation. And to his surprise, she stood up with boldness and confidence, and she said, I know what it means. It means God wins. Now, some of you may have heard this. I don't know if it's true or not. It's a story that I've heard since I was little. But much of Revelation is like these seven chapters in the book of Daniel, full of this apocalyptic vision and literature and language that is used. And the entire point of the visions that we read in chapter 7 through 12 basically means that God wins. God wins. And I know for us sitting here, we go, okay, I mean, it might make sense in this time period that we read in Daniel and his prophecy, but what does it mean for us? Is God truly victorious? Is he winning? We look at our own city, and we think about the race relations that are going on. I don't know if you read about the Nordstrom Rack incident, where these high school black kids were just there to shop for their suits for graduation. And they were called by the cops to come, and they were accused of stealing when none of that had happened. Or what happened this past week with Starbucks, shutting down their stores so that they could work with their employees on what it looks like to, to understand their own implicit biases. Or think about the political turmoil that we are going through in our nation. Think about the trade wars that we're reading about that are affecting our economy. Think about even what we just heard this morning from the video of our LGBTQ community and the ways that even Christians have mishandled and abused and, and has, have just treated the LGBTQ community unfairly with absolutely no love. Think about what's going around in our world. The natural disasters, the storms that have impacted greatly Puerto Rico or the volcanoes that have hit Hawaii on the big island. You think about all the things that are happening around our world in our nation, even with the Me Too movement and with Harvey Weinstein, we read the newspapers, we look on our blogs, we look on our Twitter accounts, and you go, is God truly victorious? Is Revelation and this book that we just read in Daniel chapter 7, is it, truly, is it true that God wins? Because at surface level, it doesn't seem like it at all. 
Where is that hope? Where is that encouragement for us to continue to trust in these visions that are supposed to give us hope this morning? What I want to do for us is reassure you that God does win. Even in the midst of the brokenness, even in the midst of the pain and the suffering that we see and hear about, that maybe you are experiencing even in your own family or in your workplace, what I want to assure us this morning is that God is truly victorious. And we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to, we're going to ask three questions. What is this apocalyptic literature? And introduce us to that. Secondly, ask, what is going on in chapter 7? And then lastly, why does it even matter to us today? So first, what is this apocalyptic literature that we just read in chapter 7? Well, first we have to realize that this apocalyptic vision that we, that we read here, that Daniel shares, is really a form of prophecy. Now there's all different kinds of literature in the Bible. You have poetic literature, you have law, you have a historical narrative that we've read in chapters 1 through 6, you have Proverbs, you have letters that are written by the Apostle Paul to the church, and you have prophecy. And here this apocalyptic literature is this one of prophecy. It's a certain kind of prophecy. And the main purpose of prophecy is this, and I want you to listen to this. It's to show who God is. And second, it's to also show us what his people are supposed to do. So on one hand, prophecy, including this apocalyptic vision, is to show who God is, the theology of God, our understanding of who God is. But secondly, ethics. What, is, what are we called to do in light of who God is? What are we called to do as God's people? So you see, it's more than what we think of prophecy. It's not just this sort of foreshadowing or prediction of the future. Yes, it is that, but it's much more than that. And it's not just doom and gloom either. A lot of times we think of this apocalyptic literature as like this doom and gloom. The world is coming to an end. But rather, what if we were to actually think about it? Yes, there's a doom and gloom and there's an end. But what if we think about it as this renewal? That it also is about restoration. It's about transformation and deliverance and salvation. So as much as it is about the end days and judgment, it's also about salvation and deliverance. And so that, that kind of is a main purpose of prophecy, and specifically here as we look at this apocalyptic literature. But also what we see, and this is probably what we think about, is this, this very distinct style that we see in apocalyptic literature. So you see like strange beasts, combination of animals, like we read, lion with eagle's wings. You see a leopard with four wings and four heads. You see all of these distinct things, not just that, but also interesting numbers, right? Timetables and numbers, sevens upon sevens, threes, tens, and multiples of them. We read thousands upon thousands. So you see not only weird, strange creatures, but also numbers. 
that are thrown into these visions. And I think the other thing with this characteristics of, of apocalyptic literature is that it's just strange. It's all confusing. And I think we do two things. We either stay away from it because it's absolutely confusing, right? It's like, I don't get it, so I'm not going to ever read it. I'm not going to engage it because none of it makes sense. Or what other people do is they try to make sense of it to the point where they take every single number and somehow tie it to history or add different numbers up and multiply and subtract it and it'll give us the date that Jesus will come back. And we've seen that throughout history of these men and women who basically use the book of Revelation or Daniel and try to predict the second coming of Jesus, to sell all your goods and possessions because Jesus is coming back. It is confusing. But I think what I want us to understand here is that rather than trying to decipher or trying to run away from it, is to understand it in its totality, in its whole. I would, I would, I would sort of I would equal it to science fiction, right? NPR recently did like the top 100 science fiction, and guess what was number one of all science fiction books? Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. And you think about someone like Gollum, right? And each science fiction character, every monster or every freaky beast, we don't take every single part of its detail and try to come up with some, some allegory for every single part but we take the sum of its whole and we convey its meaning. So someone like Gollum, we understand even though he's scary looking, he's got a strange voice and we can all probably mimic it and I won't. <laughs> we understand that as we look at this character, we see one where we can identify with being enslaved to the things that we love. And we lose our humanity because of it, right? And in much, that, in much of that same way, as we look at these beasts, as we look at the ancient of the day as the son of man, we're supposed to look at its totality and convey what God is trying to share with us and understand its meaning. One commentator said this. He said, as has been said of the book of Revelation, so we might say of Daniel 7 through 12 that it, that it is a picture book rather than a code book. We have not a code to be deciphered, not some kind of explicit prose description of events as they will unfold in the world. Rather, we have these dramatic pictures of the future. And the pictures that are painted here are pictures drawn from the icons of the ancient world. That is, we need to appreciate the literary and artistic background of this literature. Don't be afraid of it. Don't try to take all the little details and make sense of it, but take it on its whole to understand what is God trying to convey to us. So here's one thing I have for our children that have remained with us this morning. This is a picture book. And some of you have amazing gifts of drawing. Maybe for adults too this morning. I challenge you this morning to draw as you listen to this sermon. This amazing picture and description of this vision that Daniel has received. And so let's look at what is actually going on here. My second point, what is going on? So here's what's going on, right? Just so that we kind of can be all on the same page. There's these four winds from the four corners of the earth that come and it churns up the sea 
And it's not just like this tidal wave that goes in one direction. It's more like this crazy, chaotic storm that is swirling. And in, and in biblical literature, anytime you see seas and chaos or seas that are churning, it's talking about chaos. It's talking about disorder. And out of this disorder and chaos come these four beasts. And the first beast is what? It's this lion. And it's this lion with these wings on its back of an eagle. And what happens, the, e- weak, the eagle's wings are plucked off. And he's made, this, this lion is made to stand on its own two feet like a man. Then the second beast rises out from this chaotic storm. And what is it? It's a bear. But this bear is voracious. It's hungry. It's ready to devour. And it's so hungry that out of its mouth are already three ribs from something that it's eaten. I mean, it's gross. This is like rated maybe PG-13 or R, right? And it's devouring. It's hungry. It wants to eat and destroy and kill. Well, the third one is a leopard that comes up. And leopards, what are they? They're fast. They're agile. And this leopard isn't just any leopard. It's got four heads. It's got four wings. And it's ready to kill and devour. And the fourth, which isn't named, but its teeth are made of iron. And its claws are made of bronze. And it is the most scary, most ferocious, most powerful beast of all four. Now, this chapter of these four beasts actually is in correlation to chapter 2 that we read and studied. And what was it? It was King Nebuchadnezzar with this dream that he has of this huge, huge idol. And it's made up of four metals. Remember, the, the head was made of gold. Its chest was of silver. Its body was of bronze. And the feet were made of iron and clay. And we see this boulder come and crush this huge metal idol. And here we get much of the same thing. And in one respect, it's actually giving us a prophecy of history. Because it's speaking of the different different empires that are coming. So the first, the gold, is Babylon, which is the lion with its eagle's wings. Then the next one with the bear is a Persian empire that comes and conquers. And it's got those three ribs in its mouth because it devours and eats and kills and takes over Babylon. And the third is the Greek empire that comes alongside, the leopard. And the last, this ferocious, this big, unnamed beast is Rome. Now, while we can stay there and be comfortable with that prophecy, I think it's much more than just a historical prophecy. Because what it is describing is the kingdom of man. It's describing the characteristics of what it is for empires and nations to rule over this world. It's one of ferocious, scary power. Ferocious power that mankind has to devour and to kill. It has the speed of a leper to be able to be hasty in its persecution of God's people. It's this seeming invincibility that empires and the kingdom of man have, thinking that they could rule and conquer and have their empires and nations last 
forever. You see, it described not just the history, but it's a prophecy, a picture of what man does and is capable of when we rule. And we see that in our history, right? Whether it's the Babylonian Empire, whether it's Greece, whether it's Rome, whether it's even America, we think we are the greatest nation in the world. We come and go. And we try to conquer. We rule with our power and might. We devour and kill. Why? For our name's sake. And here we get this vision of that. There's also a description and characteristic of this war between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Because in this vision, we see how in many ways the kingdom of man is there to persecute, kill, and destroy the kingdom of God. And I think that leaves us with this question of, is there any hope for us? You think about the refugee crisis. You think about what's going on in the Middle East. I was just reading recently about St. George's Church in Baghdad, Iraq. And over the past five years, the pastor there has said about a thousand of his own members over the course of five years have died because of persecution and suffering at the hand, at, at the, at, because of the sake of religion and war. Their church building has been bombed many times. Bombers have come in and killed some of their members and parishioners. And just this past December was the first time that the Christian community, that before all of this happened, there were about 50,000 Christians in Iraq, specifically mostly in Baghdad. And over this Christmas, as they finally started coming back, only about a few hundred Christians had come back into their city to worship on Christmas Eve. And for God's people, we ask, where is the hope? It seems like this is it. But for us, there is hope. Because it doesn't end in verse 8. We see in verse 9 this amazing picture of the Ancient of Days sit on his throne, and he opens this book, and it's this book of judgment. That all these beasts will be judged. And we see that fourth beast be killed and destroyed, while the other three beasts will only be allowed to live for only a short time. And what happens with this Ancient of Days? This is God the Father, who has white hair, white robe, describing his, his purity, his wisdom, his power, his eternal power, the ancient of days. There was no beginning, there is no end. And he gives his authority to the Son of Man. What is the Son of Man? You see this in verse 13 and 14. Well, for anyone who's familiar at this time, who's a Hebrew, would understand the Son of Man, that language Son of Man, would just be any human being. Just a man. A person. But what's so interesting about this is that in verse 13, we see that this Son of Man comes on a cloud of heaven. 
And that is very familiar language that speaks of deity, of God's presence. So when God's people were exiled out of uh, Egypt and set free, when they went to Mount Sinai, what happens? A cloud, a pillar of cloud comes upon Mount Sinai because why God's presence is there to give them the Ten Commandments. As they are in, in, in with the wilderness, what does God do? He gives them this pillar of cloud. What is that? By day, so that they could follow him and know that God is with them. And this cloud speaks of God's presence and his deity, but the Son of Man comes upon that. So what we have is the Son of Man that is like a man, a person, but he comes on a cloud speaking of his deity. So you see this God-man come, whose dominion and power and authority is forever. He will rule. He will judge. He will practice mercy. He will practice justice. And I know for us in America, it's hard to understand that because we are comfortable. We don't experience what other countries experience with the persecution and suffering and war. But you speak to anybody who goes through that and they long for justice. You speak of people who have been abused even in our own church and in your friends and neighbors. They long for justice. Why? Because wrongs have been done. And here, the Son of Man, God-Man comes to bring His rule, His perfect kingdom that is described with shalom, reconciliation, forgiveness, love, peace. And He comes to reign and endure forever. While the kingdom of man dies The kingdom of God will reign because of the Son of Man. And Daniel doesn't explain it, but we understand if anyone who reads the New Testament that this Son of Man is who other than Jesus himself. He gives himself this name 81 times in the Gospel. 41 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says that he is this Son of Man. One commentator, Eugene Peterson, said, The Son of Man has dinner with a prostitute. Stops off for lunch with, tax, with a tax collector. Wastes time blessing children when there were Roman legions to be chased from the land. Heals unimportant losers. And of course, he is eventually hung on a Roman cross to die. Still, he himself promised one day to come on the cloud to bring final judgment and salvation to the earth. That is our hope. That is our hope that in the midst of war and suffering and pain, That the Son of Man has come, Jesus himself, to rule. And what's so strange about this, though, is you would describe what we read here is that the Son of Man would come and be this political ruler. That Jesus would come to be Caesar himself to have dominion and reign. Does he do that? No. Does he raise up this army to basically rid of all the Roman Empire for the Jewish people? No. Does he become this Machiavellian character to basically take over? No. What does the Son of Man, Jesus, do? He actually is a man of weakness. He suffers. He dies. It's not one of power initially, of strength, of ferociousness. But it's one of weakness. It's one of humility. It's one of suffering. It's one of death. 
You see, the kingdom of God only comes through suffering, death, not power, but weakness, not control, but love. Costly, sacrificial love. You see, it is exactly this kingdom of God that we all long for, isn't it? One that is marked by love, forgiveness, dignity, unity, peace, renewal, healing, restoration, shalom, reconciliation, joy, contentment. That's what we long for. And here, Jesus offers that to us. That is our hope this morning. But why does it matter then for us? My third point. Why does any of this matter? Three things, I think. First, it's hope. We can hope. No matter how terrible earthly rulers might be, we can be certain that they are on a leash because the Ancient of Days is on the throne. He is seated. He is great and he is good. And he will rule and reign. God is still on his throne. History is still moving toward its appointed goal. The saints are still eternally secure, and the wicked are being reserved for judgment. See, what does this mean for us? The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of man. There's this beautiful humanity for the kingdom of God. What you see with the kingdom of man is these ugly beasts. But you see with the kingdom of God is this humanizing beautiful picture of what Jesus has brought in to reign and rule. So we can actually hope and trust that God is on his throne and he is in control and he is sovereign. But secondly, I think we are allowed to lament. We're allowed to lament. Look at verse, I didn't read this, but look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me, was anxious And the visions of my head alarmed me. And then jump down to the last verse of the chapter in in verse 28. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. You see, we see that Daniel was troubled in his thoughts and in his heart. He wasn't troubled because he was finding it difficult to understand the meaning and the details. He was troubled because of this forecast of the trials that awaited the church. Because of the long years that remained with the world's rebellion against God. And because he felt the pain and the sorrow of the wicked being brought to ruin. It was hard to take all of it in as powerful as a vision had been. And I think we are in that tension where we can lament the brokenness of our world. Whether it's the refugee crisis. Whether it's the race relations. Whether it's the political climate whether it's the persecution of the Christian church around the world, we can lament and get on our knees and pray and ask, how long, O Lord? There is room for that because God is in control and because we can hope. We can also lament and cry out, asking the Lord to deliver. But third, which I think gets to remember what I said about prophecy. It's to show who God is. He is sovereign. He is in control. But the second thing was the ethics. What are we to do? And here, I think, is the most important thing. 
We are called to love. We are called to sacrificially love and lay down our lives. You hear me say this all the time. We are called to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Always. We are always called to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Those that are weaker than us. Those that have less privileges than us. Those that are in a different socioeconomic status. We are called to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Isn't that what the Son of Man did? Jesus does not conquer. Jesus does not conquer with the blood of his enemies, but by his own blood and is vindicated by his resurrection. The assumption is that then we, as his followers, are supposed to do the same. We're supposed to follow that same path to love and lay down our life for another. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're called to love. That is why I think it was so appropriate that we shared about the Pride Fest that is happening on the 24th. When the church has such a black eye on how we've treated others, other minority groups, this gives us the opportunity to lay down our lives and to love. It's how what we did with that widow who was scammed with the roof, and we went in there to build a brand new roof, though many of us had no clue what we were doing. <laughs> That's what it means to love the Ledoux School District and Parkway. What it means to come alongside Lowe's and Fishes. What it means for our youth to go to Chattanooga and practice mercy and justice for a city that is racked by race and poverty. And even when we are persecuted as a church, maybe in your workplace, by your neighbors, we are called to lay down our life and love and show the love of Christ through the way of the Son of Man, Jesus himself. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful ethic of how we are supposed to live. Let me end here with a quote by Christopher Wright. He said this, as I sum this up, the future, in other words, belongs not only to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, but to the Son of Man, that is, us human beings. The creature God created in his own image to exercise dominion over creation will at last do so in the way God intended and in a way that reflects God and serves God on God's cleansed earth. Meanwhile, the four beasts continue their arrogant and destructive work, but they do so under the ultimate control of the one on the throne. And in the midst of such times, we remind ourselves that, that when we pray, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, we know that it is also the case that in Christ and because of Christ, ours is the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. That is my prayer as our hope for us this morning, that the Lord would strengthen us, encourage us to have hope, to lament, and to love. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Son of Man, Jesus, who did not come to be some Machiavellian ruler to bring in an army and to bring an insurrection 
to lay down his life, to shed his own blood, not the blood of enemies, because of his love for his enemies. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage, you would give us the grace to do so, to do likewise, and to love in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hate, that, Lord, yours is a kingdom that is described and characterized by peace, humanity, love, joy, reconciliation, restoration, healing. Lord, I pray that you would do that here first through this family of Crossroads so we might be a light to the community around us that would be so attractive. Would you use us to that end? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.